0: it seems like creatives always get a bad rap
1: from childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests strange superstitions and even self-mutilation it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits
0: but they've also made a pretty big impact on the world
1: hi i'm kate rooney
0: and i'm just scuffy
1: and you're listening to creatives are the worst presented by design pickle the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform
0: in this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst?
1: Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. My name's Kate Rooney, and I'm with my co-host, Jess Guffy.
0: Good morning, Kate. How are we doing today? You're on vacation, so I can't even ask you that. It's not a (laughs) fair question.
1: (laughs) That's why I'm so peppy with this intro. (laughs) It's not fair.
0: It's not fair. Just kidding. It is fair.
1: (laughs) Hey, man. Hey, man. It's Friday morning, 8 a.m. I'm on vacation, and I'm here recording this podcast with you. That's dedication,
0: people. That is some dedication.
1: And then I'm leaving for Mexico and never coming back. Well, Just kidding. I
0: wouldn't blame true. you.
1: Cabo is a wonderful, magical no. place. So, oh, I'd miss my dog too much. I'd
0: miss you too much. Oh, okay, it's only an hour and a half away. <laughs> <What is> it? <laughs> it's not enough. <laughs>
1: oh, man. No, I'm excited. But I'm also excited for your story
0: today. But for-
1: before we dive in, what's been going on in your world at Design Pickle? There's been some fun stuff
0: going down. yeah. This week we've filmed, or worked on filming rather, it's been quite a project, we're doing an Office parody series on video, and really working to play into the whole agency vibe and what we think agencies are like, so lots of humor. I was on a call at the office while they were filming, and I just heard mass chaos, and everyone was screaming, and I came out because I thought something was wrong, and they were like, oh no, it's just one of the scenes. (laughs) Like, okay. well, you sent me a video
1: of a fire in the office and scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Like, what? What's going on? And then I realized it was
0: staged. it was staged. But it was contained. No uh, trash cans were harmed in the, <laughs> the making of that video. <laughs> I was
1: v concerned yeah, when that happened.
0: It's, I hope it presents as well in the final cut as it does on that little iPhone clip, because it was <laughs> very believable.
1: It, it looks awesome. And I make a cameo in it. Yeah, you do. Via Zoom. I think
0: your character's name is Gail.
1: Yeah, it's Gail, and she's a very
0: angry woman. It, it's the wig for me. Uh, yeah. Our listeners don't really know this about you Because obviously it's a podcast and not on video But Kate has quite a wig collection And really enjoys donning a good wig
1: <laughs> It it all started in quarantine, I think I just started making a lot of random Amazon purchases And some of those were wigs And a lot of them That is true, I will get texts from
0: you Like, I think I need to buy some wigs And I'm like, okay <laughs> I mean, do it No complaints here <laughs> Yeah, Gail had the wig. It it drew power
1: out of me. I felt really powerful. I think you could be up and... for a
0: Daytime Emmy for that performance, to be honest. I mean... Yeah, I accept. We'll see. I'll put the <laughs> nomination in for you. <laughs> <laughs> but aside, aside from girl. that Emmy, we are going to talk about um, filming today. And uh, oh. Kate, I'm going to read you a quote, or rather recite a quote from my high school yearbook. My own senior quote. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Stop it! I love it. Let's go. <laughs> Wait, this is a quote. This is your quote that you wrote. I didn't wrote? write
0: this quote. I stole it from somewhere. And I. But like, this is what you you chose as your scene. Yeah, quote. you'll see how many uh, how few f's <laughs> I gave in high school. <laughs> Life moves pretty fast. If you don't know stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. That's. <laughs>
1: is that from ferris
0: bueller it is from ferris bueller kate and as you may or may not know ferris bueller is my all-time favorite film in the world and today we are covering none other than john hughes naturally
1: (gasps) okay oh this is awesome yes now i i I was going to cover john hughes now i see why you were being so sneaky about it (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> um, but I'm glad you're doing it. That's great. It's, I, you deserve I, I, it. Yeah,
0: thank you so much. I didn't even know that you were going to do it until I was like, oh my god, I know who I want to cover to our producer. And he was like, ooh, Kate was maybe going to cover him at one point. Uh-huh. But I evidently beat you to it, Kate. So here we are. Yeah. Um, Ferris Bueller has been my favorite movie since I was like 10. <laughs> I think I've seen it hundreds of times. So I was like, why not do a fun episode and bring us all back to our youth and these movies? And they're just fun movies, so we're going to... I love it. We're going to get into it. And there, you know, there's some interesting things about our dear friend John Hughes. I think he's a quintessential creative, like I told you, so we'll get into some of that and... As always, it's just based on our research. There is so much information about him and his legacy, as you can imagine. So we just picked some of our favorites, and it's our opinion based on our research. If you feel differently about him as a creative or about his works, let us know. Tell us where we're wrong.
1: Yeah. Y'all get the gist now if you've been listening for a while, but it's true. And we want to hear what you think. So uh, podcast at designpickle.com, if you want to yell at us or... Tell us what you think. Tell us what What
0: you
1: think. I don't even even know. You haven't even told the story yet.
0: (laughs) I don't even know. But I will say that this will lend itself to several mini episodes um, because he did do so many profound pieces of film that there's plenty to cover in future little mini episodes since we're liking those so much. So more to come there. More to come on our friend John. But for now, we're just going to talk about him as a creative. So as you know, Kate, or may or may not know, he wrote, produced, and or directed 38 films in total throughout his career. And obviously his work inspired generations of filmmakers. People still cite him as a resource, a reference, a muse for their work. And his movies are still referenced in pop culture today and in other works. People pay homage to his work all the time. Shows like Community and Bob's Burgers have made John Hughes references. So Mm -hmm. he really has just stayed around as a Hollywood icon, um, even past his death. So from the very beginning... John Hughes was born on February 18, 1950, to Marion and John Hughes Sr., and he was born in the affluent area of Gross Pointe, Michigan, during the auto boom in Detroit. And he was the only boy of three sisters, who's the second eldest, surrounded by three women. So, interesting childhood. Oh, that's,
1: that's my family. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, interesting. Man. Shout out
1: to my brother. He's a fan of the pod.
0: So, hey, Alec. Hey Alec. Up? Thanks
1: for listening. <laughs> Thanks for dealing with your three <laughs> sisters
0: your whole life. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> So, John's dad, John Sr., held a variety of sales jobs, and John at one point said, I grew up in a neighborhood that was mostly girls and old people. There weren't any boys my age, so I spent a lot of time by myself imagining things. And every time we would get established somewhere, we would move. Life just started to get good in seventh grade, and then we moved to Chicago. I ended up in a really big high school, and I didn't know anybody. But then the Beatles came along and changed my whole life. And then Bob Dylan. Whoa. And my heroes were Dylan, John Lennon, and Picasso because they each moved their particular medium forward. And when they got to the point where they were comfortable, they always moved on. I thought that was really poignant for someone reflecting on his own childhood.
1: <laughs> I'm kind of like my jaws on the floor just because, yeah, it's so eloquent, and I love the callback to hyper, hyper creative people, which is just right? you know, part of the show
0: part of the show so as the quote alludes to in 1963 his family moved to Northbrook Illinois and it was described as middle-class all-american reality he said many times I did not have a tortured childhood which kind of a departure from some of the creatives we cover that really is
1: Um, something that we've found time and time again, and it's, it's almost unusual to hear (laughs) that someone had a normal I agree.
0: And despite that, he often said that he did not fit the wealthy profile of the neighborhood. So the suburb of Northbrook is known to be a little bit more pretentious, a little bit higher class. And he cited this as some of the class anxiety he would use in his films. We see that a lot in his films. Um, they weren't, poor, they weren't struggling, but they also weren't uber, uber rich, so it kind of had a weird place for him. He ended up going to Glenbrook North High School, which would serve as inspiration in many of his films, as we'll get into. And he said about his high school times, he was an avid fan of the Beatles, and he would often dress up like them. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> what does that right? look like? I
0: couldn't find photos. I would love to have sent you one, <laughs> but... <sighs> <laughs> he also said, you know that assignment you always get in high school when you're reading Walden to keep a journal? Well, I just kept doing that. So even in high school, he was an avid writer, really liked to record everything about his life in journals. He was also an avid fan of the Red Wings, which he pays homage to in some of his films as well. well And despite having a non-tortured childhood, several sources did say that his parents were pretty hard on him and criticized him a lot, but I couldn't really find anything else about that, which I thought was interesting. So do with that information what you will. But in high school, he met the love of his life, Nancy, while they were painting homecoming murals. Stop it. Isn't that <laughs> My so <heart>. cute? <laughs> I know. <laughs> My high school sweethearts. <laughs> so cute. So John ended up going to University of Arizona for art school. Now, oh, wow. University of Arizona is not an art school, so I don't know if he just wanted to get out of Illinois or what the deal was there, but he realized pretty quickly that he was surrounded by people that were looking at, like, engineering and agriculture as their majors, and he was going to art school. So he dropped oh. out when he was 20. And he got married to Nancy. She was 19, he was 20. They were very young oh, to get wow. married. Oh, Babies. Yeah. And they went on to have two sons. But during this time, John worked various jobs to earn some sort of income, including factory jobs. He worked at a printing lab. But the entire time, he was writing. So it never stopped. One day, uh, he apparently decided that he was just over all of his paintings that he had produced in his short time in art school and took them out with bulk trash one day, never to be seen again.
1: (laughs) Oh, so he was actually, well, I guess the mural, I just thought that was like, go team! He was actually painting. Yeah, he was
0: painting, painting, which is interesting because... There's some, you know, conversation around that in interviews that I found, but he really doesn't dwell on it a lot. It's like he kind of wants to forget hmm. the painting phase of his life.
1: <laughs> okay, this is a total, total tangent, but I think it was like a BuzzFeed article or something. But there are so many celebrities, actors, directors, all these people who are just kind of secretly, not so secretly painters and artists. And so maybe that's something we dive into someday. I, I was like, whoa, it's so, I, now I can't remember off the top of my head some yeah. of the people in it, but like straight up beautiful artwork that they make just as their side, not side hustle, but I don't know, I guess they have unlimited time and money and resources <laughs> so that helps. But
0: like a cool hobby. I think anyone, yeah. can, you paint, I think it's so cool to be able to sit down and make something beautiful on a canvas. Our CEO, Russ Perry,
1: he got into painting this year and I'm almost jealous of, of how talented he is because he he never did it and he picked it up and I think took a couple classes and his artwork is really cool. I'll, we'll see if we can maybe steal that from him to post and I'll
0: post some of my paintings. Yeah, please too. do.
1: I- but the, well, I don't know how he we went down this road.
0: But. Well, because, you know, John was a painter, so it's fine. <laughs> so... As I mentioned, he he left his art behind, but he was still writing the entire time. So he started writing jokes, and in his mind, he thought that maybe he could start selling them to the biggest comedians of the time. So Joan Rivers was one of them. He would write jokes specifically tailored for the big comedians, so in their voice, thinking that that might be a better opportunity to actually sell them. And he was absolutely relentless in this pursuit. He was constantly submitting jokes to be sold, which... By the way, I was thinking about this, and I was like, "How do you even do that? How do you just say, "Here, Joan, here's a joke <laughs> for <you?"> Yeah, like, <laughs> that sounds like such a fun job. right i I just couldn't get over the fact that it was that easy to submit a joke. I mean, now I don't know anyone that has ever done that or like how you would even yeah. go about that. So something to think about. But occasionally a joke would actually sell, and he even got some in the monologue of The Tonight Show um no way. yeah but it was only about five dollars a joke <laughs> so oh. not enough Well, i'm out yeah <laughs> not enough to earn a living by any means which is why he continued to work his other side gigs five dollars a joke yeah who decided the market on that five dollars a joke here <laughs> like what come and get your jokes <laughs> five pence <laughs> so weird <laughs> So he started realizing that because he was able to write jokes, maybe he could write other things that were a little more productive than working in factories. So he actually landed a job at a big advertising agency in Chicago. It was just an entry-level job, but he figured leveraging his jokes would be a really good start to working in an ad agency. And then he was doing really well there. He immediately started killing it because his brain just worked like that. And then in 1974, he got a job with the renowned ad agency, Leo Burnett. You've probably heard of it. Wow. Yeah. So the creative director he worked for said that he instantly realized that John was basically a savant. He said he was constantly beating away at the typewriter fueled by coffee and cigarettes, which is so 70s (laughs) to me.
1: (laughs) That's so, like, that stereotypical creative, just holed up in the room. Yep just I, chugging away smoking chain smoking cigarettes right
0: and i know it's not realistic but i am so entranced by the whole mad men like old ad agency vibe i think that would yes. be so cool i think we would have thrived there
1: i've i've watched mad men like three times through it's so good multiple times it's it's so i mean don draper he's a mess but that whole era is just so glamorous and so cool,
0: fun, so fun. Not maybe for women, but <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, it's the century. If I
1: were a man, it would have been so fun, it's so cool.
0: So obviously, he was flourishing in this environment, and he eventually had some success with a few campaigns for Kellogg and for Edge shaving gel. So nothing small there. He was working on some big accounts. And he was eventually put on the Virginia Slims, which was a cigarette maker account, and their headquarters were in New York City. So he would frequently have to go to New York. And when he would go to New York, he would hang around the National Lampoon offices. And this was cited as his dream workplace. Like He would have given anything to work full-time for the National Lampoon. And because he was out there so frequently, he started to form a bond with the managing editor at the Lampoon. And they ended up continuing to work together, and he was doing this as a side hustle at the time, and they created an entire Sunday paper parody called the Dacron, so it's like a spoof on a town in Ohio or the Midwest, the Dacron Republican Democrat, is what they called this fake paper. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: are with names again, that's clever.
0: Very clever. So they were doing all this stuff, and his creative director at Leo Burnett knew he was working with the Lampoon, and... I love this because what a cool boss that like recognizes talent. He agreed to allow John to work on Lampoon items in the morning if he got Leo Burnett items done in the afternoon. So he basically was like, dude, like I get it, and you're super talented in this space. Go for it, but you still have to get your stuff done. But I don't really care if you're working on Lampoon stuff as well. Which I just love. I think that's a nice, a nice thing to do. Maybe not the best use of company time, but you know.
1: Well, I mean, hey man, if you're getting your job done
0: and you're... Just a mad genius. Why not? I agree, and I really enjoyed this. It might be a little shy, see, but we kind of see uh, glimmers of Ferris Bueller in this. So. He would, John would create the illusion that he was still at his desk by leaving a full cup of coffee on his desk, even if he was going to New York. So he would literally plant a full cup of coffee so that if anyone walked by, they were like, oh, John's just around the corner, John's in the bathroom or whatever, but he would literally be in New York City at the Lampoon offices.
1: See, I do that, but just because I'm forgetful. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of half-consumed cups
0: of coffee around my desk right now. Yeah, I need one of those warmers so bad, because my second cup is... It takes like two hours.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just don't put a pillow on your (laughs) mug warmer when you're trying to record a podcast, because you might... Almost catch your office on fire. Just um, hot tips. Never happened to me or anything like that. No, I just, you know, in case that would happen.
0: We're big on safety know. tips here. Never forget the <laughs> lint trap safety. So, you know, just a hot tip for your <laughs> your coffee warmer. No, that that literally happened, though. Uh,
1: I, were we were recording a podcast? Yeah, I think
0: we were. Yeah, I have days. one of those coffee
1: one of the early days. Yes, it was because it was before we had nicer mics and I would put pillows and blankets all over my desk to sound better. And I had one on my mug warmer and started smelling burning (laughs) at one point. We had to pause and I searched. I was like, where's that coming from? My mug warmer was about to light my pillow on fire.
0: Just normal cart things. It's fine. Oh, man. Be fine. careful, guys.
1: <laughs> Be careful. It's
0: a crazy world out there. So, by 1979, the Lampoon finally convinced John to come on board full-time. So, he was super stoked. Obviously, like I mentioned, it was his dream workplace. But he never bothered to relocate his family to New York. He really just dismissed New York altogether. And he said... <laughs> About the city It's a great city if you cleaned it up and moved everything back 10 feet <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a way with words yep.
0: So he was hired in the wake of the Animal House success And because of this Everyone was pitching movies Like Everyone at the Lampoon was like I know, I can write this in the movie And I can write this screenplay But John actually had the talent to do it So, he wrote his very first screenplay, National Lampoon's Class Reunion, which was a spoof on Animal House. And it was terrible. It was received terribly. It had terrible reviews. But you know what? He got his first screenplay out there, and he started down that path. So, not too long after, Warner Bros. bought the rights to Vacation 58, which was a short story he had written at the start of his Lampoon career. Now, we all know that this was eventually adapted into a screenplay by John himself into National Lampoon's Vacation. So, I did not realize that that was based on a short story that he had written. I had no idea. No. So, the film debuted in 1983, and it was the first of two breakthrough hits that he had that summer in film. The second one was Mr. Mom, starring Michael Keaton. Have you seen that movie, Kate? Maybe... It's really cute. It's a really cute sort of warming uh,
1: probably film. when I was really, really young, but
0: yeah, no recollection. It was his first adventure outside of the Lampoon world. So he said that he did not enjoy this experience or the vacation experience. Like, he just didn't enjoy those films. He didn't enjoy writing in that style. Hmm. So that is where we get to the world of Shermer or writing about teenagers. Now, we're going to spend some time here, because I think John Hughes, if he's known for anything, it's for his teen film. So, we're going to get into yeah. it. So, Sixteen Candles is his first screenplay that he writes, okay? Whoa! Well, outside of The Lampoon. So, it's his first screenplay. Well, yeah, teenage. but still. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going to talk about the teen trilogy he's most celebrated for. Um, obviously, he had several films outside of that, and we'll touch on that, but... It's really this teen trilogy that goes down in history. Yeah. So someone said about John, as a control freak who had grown accustomed to micromanaging every aspect of his advertising and print work, he was eager to direct his own scripts and to exercise his genesis and creativity to the fullest. So, with 16 Candles, it was his directorial debut, and he wrote the script in two days, Kate. <laughs> what?
1: Yeah. See, everything that you're telling me, though, I'm either like... He is just, like you said, a creative savant who can do these insanely, almost magical things. Or on the flip side, he is that quintessential creative who just waited to the last minute to write a script in two
0: days. Yeah. (laughs) And it was amazing. So the funny thing about this is that he had already written the script for The Breakfast Club, okay? But he wrote the script for 16 Candles in two days while Breakfast Club was, like, being prepared, essentially, And the former president of Universal, Ned Tannen, was so impressed by the script that they decided to go with Sixteen Candles before The Breakfast Club, and he agreed to option The Breakfast Club as well, as long as Sixteen Candles was made first, because they were like, there's something here. Now, Ned Tannen, just as a sidebar, he had already done Animal House, American Graffiti, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, so he knew a thing or two about a successful film. Yeah. Yeah. And really, this excited John because he was worried that the Breakfast Club would fail and doom his career. (laughs) So he was excited to put 16 candles first and then have Uh the Breakfast Club follow. So he's looking through headshots for the Breakfast Club and saw who did he see? Molly Ringwald! Yeah. And this is actually what inspired him to write a 16-candle uh, screenplay. So he put her headshot on a bulletin board, and that's how he wrote it in two days. So she was essentially his muse to write that whole screenplay. And she didn't audition for either film. They just talked. And Molly recalls he was not the typical film director with trendy Nikes and a young face. Like, he was super trendy. He was young. He wasn't this old white guy. He was just in there. He was with the Times. He had glasses, like kind of nerdy, but kind of not. It was more laid back than other directors, because at the time, most of them were in their 50s and 60s. And he's, I mean... He's in his early 30s at this point. Okay. And they also shared a birthday, so Molly thought that this was fate that they met. 16 candles. It's so precious. I know. So Anthony Michael Hall was also cast in this movie as the geek archetype. And he was also only 15 at this time when he was cast for the movie. I know, such babies. (laughs) But both Molly and Anthony Michael Hall recall John being incredibly collaborative throughout the entire experience, despite them being only 15 years old. Like, he wanted their input. Oh, she was 15 too. Yep. He encouraged a creative environment. And eventually, he brought them on to the Breakfast Club, too, after they finished Sixteen Candles because he had such a good experience with them. And because of this, they were referred to by other actors as John's teacher's pets because of their bond with him. Like, first of all, okay, whatever. Like, just because they've worked with him prior, that's a little (laughs) across Yeah,
1: they were saying that in a (sighs) negative way.
0: Yeah, they're teacher's Mm. pets. John was allegedly a little upset that Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald were dating. So just let that simmer. We'll talk about that a little bit Hmm. more. So back to 16 Candles. As we know, the film is about a girl who's turning 16, but it's overshadowed by her sister getting married. Now, the film has been criticized a little bit for its cultural representation of the Chinese exchange student, as well as the boob scene and some random phallic references throughout the film. It's important to note here, I actually, in a class in college, we talked extensively about the representation of this character and just how offensive it is from a stereotype perspective. But something else to note here is that there has never been a significant black character in any of John's films, Hmm. And when asked about this, he said, I'm not going to pretend I know the Black experience. Though, when he's been confronted with the fact that even race-neutral roles don't portray any Black people, he said that it's an entirely proper argument, and maybe he's been wrong, and said, maybe I'll get there. So, do with that what you will. I don't know, seems like there's some interesting trends around also think race
1: about um he came from the lampoon group and the people i mean that's a super white <laughs> group of men in particular who were making these m- movies and they were very popular and that was his yep. world and the world's changing man so exactly but yeah that's that, that, that the char- what uh, what is the character's name long long duck dong or something like that it's so. And they play a gong whenever he yeah.
0: appears on the screen. I
1: remember yeah. that, and that it, it's
0: icky. It's not good. Despite all this, though, the film received. Obviously, this wasn't offensive at the time because people didn't care about. Well, not offensive to <laughs> some people. I'm sure it was still. Yes, yeah. some- yes. The greater population did not realize that it was offensive. But despite all this, the film obviously received rave reviews, and Molly's performance was praised for its offbeat candor. Someone else said, one of the critics said, at a time when most movies portrayed high school students as nothing more than sex-starved idiots looking to cause havoc, Hughes' directorial debut bucked the trend. So he really just made a wave with 16 Candles. So he moved his family out to L.A. this year because Universal was insistent upon him editing the film in L.A. They did not want to let him do this anywhere else. And he ended up living in L.A. for four and a half years but kept a home in Illinois the whole time just as a quick sidebar like he never cared about LA he hated the LA scene he was not interested in partying he was not interested in schmoozing execs like he cared about his family more than anything else and Aww. did not care about just the the hustle and bustle of the LA yeah. scene the Hollywood scene easy to
1: get sucked into that that's for sure
0: yeah So it was often said that he did not maintain many close relationships, but his house was a really happy place with an open-door policy, so those that he was close with were always welcome, it was always a happy environment for people to come through, hang out, have fun, whatever. And one of those people was actually John Candy, so the two were really, really close. They bonded over their similar interests in hockey and their family. John Candy, as we may or may not know, was a huge family guy. And his daughter actually once said that their families were basically merged. They were so close, all of them, that they hung out all the time. The Hughes family would actually go up to Canada all the time to the Candy's farm. So they were really, really, really close.
1: That sounds so fun. Right? (laughs) Hanging out with these amazingly talented,
0: funny families. I know. I know. So the next film, as we've touched on, The Breakfast Club... It actually started out being called detention, just the one word. (laughs) But he took the phrase, the breakfast club, from a friend's teenage son who called Saturday detention the breakfast club. So that's where the film gets its name from. Way better name than detention. (laughs) Yep. And as you may not know, the film focuses on teenagers from different cliques spending a Saturday in detention, so it really highlights all the different stereotypical cliques that you see in a normal high school. Now, this film had a tiny, tiny budget. Even for what it was at the time, the budget was only $1 million for Whoa. the entire film. <laughs> yeah.
1: We just talked about Ghostbusters, which was $25
0: million, and that was also a comedy. Dang. Crazy. But John directed and wrote this film also, and it was shot in 32 days. So that's super, super short. If you think about it, though, you've seen Breakfast Club. Yeah, it's... All one location. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I get it. So I, I see can it. see how that happened. But despite it being only 32 days, John shot over a million feet of film, which is insane.
1: So far, it sounds like he likes to do things in a very short period of time. Yeah. But Just in bulk,
0: <laughs> rapid fire. Yeah. And someone actually said that he shot way more film than most directors because he wanted extra choices in the editing room. And he said himself that editing is the best comic tool. And he said he's good at it because it's like writing. It's solitary. So he really felt like he could focus and just crank out some of the comedic timing in the editing room versus, you know, with other people on set. So I thought that was interesting. But despite this, it was unheard of for a low budget teen film to have this much film. I mean, no one at the time was shooting a million feet of film (laughs) for a teen movie. He
1: wrote, directed and edited Everything himself? Yep.
0: (sighs) Wow. Insane. That's wild. Yep. So, apparently he also had an insane memory, so he could really recall a lot from his own youth, and that's what he used to feed kind of The Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles and some of his later films, because he just could pull memories out of his butt and then turn them into scenes. And as I previously mentioned, and John was scared about this too, they were a little scared that it was going to be a total flop. They were like, who's going to want to watch this movie? Like, no one will care. But it was an immediate hit in the winter of 1985. Like, immediate success. As we know today, it's still prevalent in our culture. So, after The Breakfast Club, we have 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club is part of the trilogy. The third, of course, my favorite and yours, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So, we talk about timelines, and John's being really short. The basic story for Ferris Bueller was developed in a day, and pitched to execs the next day. And the final script was done in a week.
1: Yeah. We said this about Ghostbusters, too, but it just makes me think of startup life, man.
0: Right? It's crazy
1: gotta get it done quickly you gotta perform and you have to present something that is
0: life-changing like tomorrow (laughs) yep so about this workflow that he evidently was very very much so in when he was in a writing mode he said if i'm on a roll and i finish a script at three i'll start another at 302 i'll stay (laughs) with it as long as it takes he calls the process being inside the script that's when you write and you look at the clock and it's midnight, and then you look at the clock again and it's 5am, and you've done 30 pages, and you don't know where it came from.
1: Whoa. It's like he's possessed by the creative right? <laughs> spirits.
0: Ooh. Ooh. So, as we know, in this film, Matthew Broderick plays Ferris Bueller and plays the best friend everyone wishes they had. He has a little bit of everything. And, of course, this is also known as a love letter to Chicago. It shows a lot of the famous Chicago landmarks and really cool parts of the city, and there's that famous parade scene that yeah. I absolutely loved as a child. I thought it was so fun, which, by the way, also has a Beatles song in it, so I think that's oh, a really cool callback to his high school. Easter egg in there. Okay. Yep. So, Matthew Broderick did say about filming this film, uh, filming this film is redundant, filming this movie, <laughs> <laughs> In an interview with Vanity Fair, he said, you have to be careful with him, John. I remember him taking me to one location, the Art Institute, and him saying, this is where you and Mia kiss, and I had not been reading the stage directions carefully, and I was like, oh, we kiss at the museum? Something I thought was a pretty innocent question, but to him, it meant that I was not prepared, and he took that as a personal affront, and I didn't care about him. Okay, so we won't be friends, we'll just do our work but he also had the ability by that evening to take you to dinner with a bunch of people and tell you what a genius you were.
1: Well, to be fair, Matthew Broderick probably should have read this, the directions.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, like,
1: uh, fair enough. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So but I'm sure there'll be more, so let's...
0: Yeah. So, this was, at the time, one of his most successful films, both financially and critically, and it made an admirable $70 million at the box office. So, pretty big Ooh. deal for the time. For a $1 million budget. Well, Ferris Bueller had a bigger budget. Oh, Breakfast oh, Club right. had $1 million. Okay. Yep. But still, $70 million on what was, for sure, like, gorilla locations and not exactly. I know we'll probably have to do a whole episode on Ferris Bueller, because obviously yeah. I would like to do that. But for the parade scene, they actually just told everyone that there was a movie being shot, and that's how they got all the people there. So, like, definitely didn't spend money on that. (laughs) So, $70 is pretty good. So I want to get into these films a little bit, because obviously this trilogy is, like, a very big deal in Mm -hmm. our times, in those times, etc. He did shoot Pretty in Pink and Weird Science as well, but those aren't considered the main core three films they're obviously part of the Hughes legend but not in the top three so Molly was obviously in Pretty in Pink and then Weird Science was with Anthony Michael Hall so using the same actors over and over again now it's been said about these films and how he wrote them that a lot of his voice came from his views on baby boomers even though he was a boomer he really felt like his generation didn't know when to step aside and let the youth have their voices. Hmm. And he wanted more people from his generation to pass the baton to give these young people a voice in society. Which I thought was really interesting, especially hmm. with all the generational wars right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no comments. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of debate around which archetype John himself fit into that he created, because he's very known for obviously the stereotypes that he created in these films with the kids. Some said it was Anthony Michael Hall's geek character. Others said it was Molly Ringwald's character. Um, others say it was Cameron from Ferris Bueller. And others say it was Ferris. <laughs> it's been described as many ways. But someone said, The truth is that Ringwald, Hall, and Broderick, and Ruck, a.k.a. Cameron, were all Cameron's, Cameron's you know. surrogates, refractions and distillations of various parts of a very complex character. Yep. He was... Yep. He was a child of the 60s who got married while barely out of his teens, a solid ad man who mischievously and semi-surreptitiously moonlighted as a humor writer, and a homebody Midwestern dad who effectively created the Hollywood clique that came to be known as the Brat Pack.
1: <gasps> wow. Yeah, it's almost like people are multidimensional, uh, complex figures with different uh, Weird. facets of our personality. <laughs> but I think that's even cooler that you could attribute his personality in, in, to all these different characters instead of being like, well, he's a
0: so-and-so. Right? I like that, too. And a very good point, Kate. We're, we're complex beings. Yes. You can't put someone into one bucket, usually. Now, something to note about these films, you mentioned short timelines, and I laughed because each of these films in the trilogy took place over very short timelines in the scripts, right? So Breakfast Club is over a few hours. Uh. Ferris Bueller is over a few hours. Sixteen Candles is One Weekend. So we don't see any dramatic transformations of these characters. It's just these short little snippets into their lives. Huh. So these films, I mentioned this, but to reiterate, they're called the Shermer Teen Scripts. Now, this gave me very, very big Quentin Tarantino vibes with the universe. So... John, at one point, said that he envisioned all of these characters from these films living in the same universe in the fictional town of Shermer, Illinois, which was based largely on the Chicago suburb of Northbrook, where he grew up. Now, in his mind, he said that Molly Ringwald's upper middle class character in The Sixteen Candles, Samantha, was a passing acquaintance of Ferris Bueller. While Judd Nelson's troubled breakfast club punk, Bender, came from the same section of town as Del Griffith, who's in planes, trains, and automobiles. And that's oh, John Candy's characters. Great movie. Right? <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. Like, I'm so fascinated by how this just comes out of their heads and they're like, oh, yeah, this universe fits all together and these characters all know each other and blah, blah, blah. <laughs>
1: like, so, okay. This is. Not really related, but I was listening to the Office Ladies podcast, and Mm -hmm. they do deep dives into the show, The Office. And just, it was so fascinating to hear them talk about, they would have, like, the Office Bible, which had every single detail about every character, anything that's even just mentioned in passing, or something that's on their desk that represents something, but it's to keep that world alive, like, you, and for consistency's sake, you... and, and that helps build a, a better story with these intricate characters and their backstories cool. and how they align. It, it, it brings the audience into a real world. I think that's so fascinating.
0: Agree. And fans love that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. that gives them something to think about even when the, the credits roll on the yeah. film, you know. So about these films... Vanity Fair said, John wanted the teen pictures to convey a sort of universal truth, that no age group takes itself more seriously than teenagers. Hmm. At that age, he said, it feels as good to feel bad as it does to feel good. Every day has the potential to be the worst day ever, like Samantha's 16th birthday, or the best, like the day Ferris spends playing hooky. I just thought that was a really cool way to describe it. It's it's, it's so many extreme emotions. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, in a 1985 interview with Chicago Trib movie critic Gene Siskel, John said that many filmmakers portray teenagers as immoral and ignorant with pursuits that are pretty base. They seem to think that teenagers aren't very bright. But I haven't found that to be the case. I listen to kids. I respect them. I don't discount anything they have to say just because they're only 16 years old. So, a lot of this, people really cited his way that he was able to make the characters emotionally honest and painfully self-aware, and how they were able to really come across more like adults when discussing social status, hierarchies of high school, things like that, they are pretty broad concepts, but the way that he was able to make teenagers do that and give them a voice was why these films were so successful. And a lot of these concepts, believe it or not, that he included in the scripts and the screenplays came from just everyday observations and stories that he got from his friends. So we know that The Breakfast Club was named because of that but in a New York Times article, he said, these are just simple truths about people and families. I happen to go for the simplest, most ordinary things. The extraordinary doesn't interest me. I'm not interested in psychotics. I'm interested in the person you don't expect to have a story. I like Mr. Everyman. Hmm. Which we see time and time again.
1: And every adult has been a teenager at one point. So that is a universal experience. We've all exactly. been through it. And it's interesting when people do think that, Oh, teenagers are so dumb. Teenagers scare me, to be honest. But (laughs) (laughs) thinking back to those days, all of the feelings you felt, they were real and very visceral. So totally we all can relate.
0: We all can. And with that, as we ponder our teenage Mm. years, we'll take a quick break. Oh, dear. Okay, bye.
1: Hey, Jess, what's green and swims in the sea? (laughs) I don't know. Moby Pickle. I can't. I know. Okay, I know that's the worst, but you know what's not the worst? Design Pickle.
0: That's right. Design Pickle is the world's leading flat rate creative services platform, offering so many features like unlimited requests, unlimited revisions, Adobe source files, brand profiles, you name it, Design Pickle does it.
1: And on top of that, they offer a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, meaning you, you have a full month to try it out and see if it's a good fit for you and your business.
0: And if you're a listener of this podcast, you can use promo code WORST at checkout to get $100 off your first month of any plan.
1: That's right. Just use checkout code WORST, all caps, and you'll get $100 off your first month. A pretty sweet deal indeed.
0: And we're back. So, I want to talk a little bit about Molly Ringwald and John Hughes and That's... their relationship. So, no, don't make that face. <laughs> it's not, it's no. not anything. Well, nothing see. salacious? Okay, oh, okay. Mm, no. So, as we know and we saw throughout this, John had a reputation for discovering and bringing out the best in young actors. And uh, the term the Brat Pack, obviously modeled after the Rat Pack was a big term back then because he would use the same actors over and over again in his films. And it was really largely considered to be Molly Ringwald, John Cusack, Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr., which I forgot, (laughs) and then expanded to include Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, (laughs) and Ali Sheedy. Emilio! (laughs) (laughs) The jock in the breakfast club. So by the time Molly turned 16 she was largely considered to be john's muse mm-hmm. and vanity fair said molly and john would fall into marathon bull sessions about life their feelings and especially music he introduced her to chicago blues and then she introduced him to some of the more british import pop he also introduced her to the Beatles, and because she was from California, she would bring all this new wave punk and new type of sound music to John, who at the time obviously was double her age and was like what is this? But she was really devoted to that type of music and she said that in Pretty in Pink, which was obviously written for her, it was because there was a Psychedelic Furs song of that title, and that's why John wrote that script. So it was said that Molly represented John's romantic ideal of the artist as misfit, sensitive and misunderstood, aspiring to wider acceptance, but reluctant to compromise too much. And on Molly's side, she just loved working with a director who seemed like, quote, one of us. And this was often uh, offset by the discomfort of his very teen-like sulks. She said that he was very easily slighted and hurt, and he would always go to the place that somebody didn't care about him if someone made a comment here or there that he didn't agree with about his work or something like that. Hmm. So Molly recalls a mortifying episode when she was on an extended trip home to Los Angeles to visit her gynecologist. And at her age, obviously she was 16, she was too embarrassed to tell John the reason for her extra day out west and john being an emotional creative he was really convinced that molly was meeting with someone for another movie like convinced himself that basically she was cheating on him with that <sighs>
1: yeah it's it's and- like a, a jealous teenage boyfriend
0: mm-hmm. or not even teenage just a jealous boyfriend yep and i guess he flipped out and thought that molly was not committed to him And she said, this is somebody who adored me. It was really terrifying. So she was really scared and hurt by this behavior. John exhibited just about a simple extra day out in LA, which is where she's from, where she lives. Mm -hmm. So now Anthony Michael Hall's relationship with John was less intense than Molly's, but a lot more familial. So at his Illinois house, he would often have Anthony Michael Hall come over, and Anthony Michael Hall was a child of divorce. So he would sleep over at John's house with the family. He loved the warmth of the family, the normalcy in the home that John and Nancy had created. And he said, in a way, I became their third son. Hmm. So very, very different than mm-hmm. <laughs> this relationship. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Yeah, they're so, treated a little bit differently for this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, throughout all of this, you know, they hadn't done Pretty in Pink yet, but this was kind of going this direction. She said in a Time story that she doesn't really see John anymore. And she said she still respects him a lot, and if he gave her a good script, she would read it. But she said, I don't think we'll work together again really soon. In fact, they never worked together again after Pretty in Pink. They had a falling out. No one really knows what's going on there. So I guess one of the stories said that even though publicly John was still really gracious about her, really complimentary of her, but she was really surprised and kind of hurt when he had one of his prodigies direct her in pretty in pink instead of directing her Mm -hmm. himself, which also is like, okay, but sometimes that happens. Like maybe he just doesn't feel like directing and I guess even though that he was the executive producer and obviously the writer of Pretty in Pink, he rarely spoke to her on set, and she said it was really hurtful, and it still hurts. I cared very, very deeply for him, and he had a huge impact on my life—not just in terms of my career, but my development as a person and as a woman. So I don't know, Kate. How do you feel about that? I'm really
1: sitting here. I mean, you can see my face, yeah. I'm pondering because <laughs> pondering this time. is. It's such an interesting relationship with like an artist and their muse, yep. and we've seen that it's not all. It doesn't have to be a man and a young woman. Like we've seen, even Sofia Coppola had uh, Bill Murray as her muse. Totally. For it's some something or someone that inspires your creative ideas. But it seems like there was something beyond that, almost like the jealousy and the almost like codependency there. <sighs> Yeah. That's really sad from
0: both sides, I think. Interesting Mm -hmm. behavior. Um,
1: but the other But she's so young. Like that's that's gotta mess with your head. This person who's you probably well, she did say she really, really looked up to him and he transformed her career and then to just that's it. Goodbye.
0: You have to fend for yourself now. Now the interesting thing is after the movie Weird Science, John also had a falling out with Anthony Michael Hall. And huh. Anthony Michael Hall thought Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller both had roles for him, but he never got the call from John. So just kind of like cold turkey had a falling out. Is
1: it kind of like once they're a certain age, he just moves on to the next?
0: I don't really know. Me, I don't really know. So later, much, much later, this is like 20 years after... Molly Ringwald sought to reach out and smooth things over with John Hughes because she was living in Paris at the time and she had been watching films by this French writer and director. And she saw that in those films, there was a lot of what she did with John Hughes, like that group of filmmakers had clearly pulled inspiration from John. So she really wanted to send John a note and say how much he meant to her and means to her still and all that. So she did. And then a week later, she got an enormous delivery of flowers. And that was actually John's final communication to his former muse. Oh, Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, just weird vibes all around in that whole trajectory of their relationship. Super
1: weird vibes. And I don't know, this is not really related, but I just want to call out, I feel like Molly Ringwald and all of the characters she's played is that first... Well, maybe not the first, but one of those instances of that trope of the uh, man—what is it called? Like manic pixie dream girl, (laughs) where it's that uh, this ideal young, kind of quirky, offbeat girl who's going to, you know, do everything to the beat of her own drum. Yeah, and that was kind of what his muse was, both for men and women, I guess. But. Solidified
0: that trope, I think, and made that really popular. Totally. And it, the interesting thing, we could probably do a whole episode on her, but Molly didn't really do much after the John Hughes films. Uh huh. And like, I think the latest thing that she did was compete on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> like, well, I don't think she's alongside done Joey
1: Fatone and yeah. Lance Bass.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> a whole interesting thing. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it to be honest. Hmm. So. Back to John. In 1987, we had planes, trains, and automobiles. Now, at this point in the episode, it will not surprise you that he wrote the entire script for that in just three days. <laughs> like, How <laughs> is that possible? I don't get it.
1: Because that's such a like complex story, too, right? kind of.
0: Apparently, there are all these maps that he drew out to try to get the story right in his head. <sighs> Um, Obviously, this film starred John Candy and Steve Martin, and it's all centered around the misadventures of Steve Martin's character trying to get home for Thanksgiving, hence the name.
1: Oh, I love that movie. It makes me cry. So cute.
0: (laughs) And this film received lots of critical acclaim, especially to John specifically for branching outside of the teen world. And Steve Martin described John as a great director, but his gift was in screenwriting. He created deep and complex characters, rich in humanity and humor. Which hmm. I would agree with. Something I noticed mm-hmm. in this episode as I was putting it together, all of the ways. I mean, John obviously is very eloquent in everything that he says, but even the way the writers talk about him, every quote makes me feel so sophisticated when I read it. Like, <laughs> they're just so like deep, and I don't know. It's so they're eloquent. They're yeah, so eloquent. All these creatives, man, right? So this film, it was super successful, it was followed by movies like She's Having a Baby, The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck, Christmas Vacation, so all of those had moderate success, they're very recognizable names, we all know Uncle Buck was with John Candy, you know, all that good stuff. But in 1989, John purchased part of a farm in Illinois, and he really was looking for a place to foster his creativity in a different way. So the land was barren at the time, and he worked super, super hard, like, dove deep into research to make it full of life, make it full of different foliage, farming, cattle, etc. And at that point, he was like, yep, I'm going back to Illinois for good. I'm sick of L.A., I'm done. So in 1990, he set out to make a movie that would entertain kids and adults alike. And he got the idea for this film... Just a tiny little film. It was kind of an indie. I don't know if you would know it. But he got the idea for it when he was planning a vacation with his sons and his wife. And he had the thought, what if we left one of the kids behind on accident? Oh, yes. And as we know, that was the entire basis for the movie Home Alone. Oh, this and is so embarrassing, but I forgot that
1: this was by John Hughes.
0: I <laughs> did, too. It's not embarrassing. I just, I don't know, it's so different than his other films and what he's known for that we'll uh-huh. talk about that
1: a little bit. Oh, wow, such a classic.
0: But yes, he did, in fact, write it, and he was producer of Home Alone. So everyone praised this because he brought it to a different dimension, right? So all of his other Schirmer films... We're in this town of Shermer that was made up. It was an amalgamation of all these different places in Illinois, different suburbs. But the world of home alone doesn't bear any resemblance to his films, and it's actually filmed and took place in the real village of Winnetka in Lake Michigan, or along Lake Michigan. So it was more realistic, despite all this slapstick humor. Now, an Atlantic article said... After the success of Home Alone, Hughes's movies noticeably changed their focus to appeal to a broader audience. They grew more polished, but missed the originality and distinct appeal of his earlier works. Home Alone signified a change of direction for Hughes and a shift in focus away from the fertile terrain he'd explored in his earlier films. So this was a pivotal moment for him. And just as a side note, Home Alone had a final gross of $285 million. Ooh, just casual. Just a yeah. little figure there. Classic, classic uh, Christmas film. Yep. Very much so. And this obviously gave him the means to put Hollywood behind him forever. He was like, you know what? I'm rich. I don't <laughs> mm-hmm. need this anymore. Yeah. Bye, suckers. <laughs> Bye, suckers. <laughs> so despite this, even though he was trying to branch out, starting in 1991, after Home Alone, he had a string of just bombs, failure movies. So career opportunities, Only the Lonely, Dutch, and Curly Sue, like not great. I've never seen any of these for a reason. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And he stopped directing altogether after Curly Sue so he could focus on writing and producing. During this time he also did, which I totally forgot was him as well, the lighthearted family fun movie Beethoven with the St. Bernard. (gasps) He did Beethoven? Yes! (laughs) I know! i love that movie me too
1: i love saint bernard's so much they're so cute oh i wonder what it was like filming
0: for that just having all these saint bernard's running around i would be so happy
1: i would be so happy wouldn't be able to get my job done i'd
0: just be crying yeah i'd just be rolling around on the ground with the saint bernard's
1: So. Uh Jess, we, we need to get this scene done. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> but he's just... so cute. I love his wrinkles. It's so <laughs>
0: fluffy and the drool. Okay. I just love them. Yeah, that would be me on a movie set with any animal. We <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would be the worst actors ever, Kate, with animals on set. <laughs> Little, little baby okay so all of these movies i mentioned it was obviously a departure from the teen films but it led him to do home alone 2 which no surprise netted 173 million in the u.s alone people were stoked for another home alone movie and then Post Home Alone 2, he had more critical duds, so he leaned more into adaptations or trying to replicate the same formula that he used in Home Alone. And this led to a terrible adaptation of Dennis the Menace, a movie called Baby's Day Out. (laughs) Like they just <laughs> I've
1: seen all of
0: these. <laughs> yeah. And they just weren't well received. A lot of people say this is eventually what caused his decline because he just was trying to make things work and not being his original self anymore. Yeah. So in nineteen ninety four he retires from the public eye. And this really shocked both Hollywood and his fans when he decided to step away. And a lot of people say that he was really shaken by John Candy's heart attack death, and obviously they were really, really close, so he took that really hard. And Vince Vaughn, he was close friends with um, until his death, believes that this was a big part of why he stepped away, even though he wouldn't say it publicly. He thinks that John Candy's death really just shook him to the core, and he was like, I don't want to do this anymore if John Candy's not going to be around to do it with. um, Now, the interesting part of him kind of retreating from Hollywood is that a lot of people, not just one article, a lot of people compared him to J.D. Salinger. Another filmmaker Hmm. said that he's our generation Salinger. He touched a generation, and then the dude completely checked out. Yep. Yep. When you said
1: that earlier, that he bought a farm and and focused on the farm, I thought of Salinger right away. I was like, oh, I bet he just stayed there and didn't talk to anyone.
0: Yep. Yep. Now, other people in Hollywood surmise that he stepped away because... Even though he was super successful in the business, he hated the actual film business and its ways. Like, he didn't enjoy being in the company of actors. As I mentioned earlier, he did not enjoy schmoozing, fighting for his films to get made. Like, he did not like the ickiness of the business. Mm -hmm. And he also was known to be a stickler for control and got into fights with executives even as he made their companies a fortune. Like, he just didn't like to conform to the Hollywood norms. Um,
1: we've, we've seen that time again with these episodes, creative, not wanting to, to give up creative control.
0: Yep. Yep. So there was obviously a profound air of mystery around him at this time throughout his whole career, but particularly when he stepped away, because there's so much speculation as to why personally, after reading all this stuff, I think it was just a combination of all of the above. He mm-hmm. didn't feel like he was making great films anymore. John Candy passed away. He didn't like Hollywood. And then when all of that builds up, you're like, eh, I'm good. I'm just going to. Well,
1: you know, when you're a creative, I mean, the, he is truly a quintessential creative. You You nailed it with that. You make your art. And sometimes I think people have that almost existential crisis of like, why am I making this? Because if that's your job, you have to deal yeah. with these industries and all the hoop jumping and all the just kind of shady stuff going on. And it takes away from that creativity and the art sometimes. So I can that's see why he's just over it. You know, did his due diligence. He was successful.
0: Yep. But very good points. Why? Why? Very good point. So, as you mentioned, he did retreat to his farm, and it was a completely mm-hmm. working farm. They employed people on it. It was a, actually quite a big operation. And in 1997, he was still dabbling in screenplays, he just wasn't directing anymore. He wrote and produced Flubber with Robin Williams, <gasps> which I also forgot was a John Hughes film. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. And this film yeah. made 92 million, which was pretty good. And this was kind of one of his last. By 2000, he was no longer even sending screenplays to studios and stopped writing screenplays altogether. And someone said, at some point, he stopped and looked around and he realized he didn't want to make movies anymore. So I would love to know, also, like, even after all the traumatic stuff that happened and when he retreated, he was still writing screenplays and producing movies. He just was doing it from Illinois, but there was a point where he just was like, I'm good on all of it. I don't even want to write screenplays anymore. So we don't really know what caused that. A lot of people think that it was because he loved being a grandpa. He had grandsons, grandkids, and he just loved grandfatherhood so much. Mm -hmm. I guess he, at this point, wore a suit every day as a statement, (laughs) and he wanted to be, like, that typical grandpa (laughs) with his suit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. He also discovered email around this time and really, (laughs) really enjoyed this medium. Like, would just blast his family with emails really long. Sending,
1: uh like what the spam emails or like the joke might, my, my dad still sends me those. Yep. Hi dad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so with that, I mean, I mentioned this, but he was enjoying email. He was writing tons of content still, but it was more for his own satisfaction and none of it was meant to go anywhere. He wasn't trying to send anything to Hollywood to his core. I think we've seen throughout that John was a writer first and foremost, before anything else, he was a writer. And in fact, he never stopped writing. He was notorious for this trait and someone said he, especially in the 80s, turned out screenplays faster than Hollywood could even make them into movies. Hmm. Writing was, for Hughes, not so much a profession as a condition of life. The thoughts that germinated in his brain took a direct path to his hands, which filled notebooks, floppy disks, hard drives, with screenplays, stories, sketches, and jokes. When he wasn't writing creatively, he was writing about how much writing he was doing.
1: I am so impressed because... There are a lot of creatives who have all these ideas and maybe struggle to get them down, you know, pen to paper or just don't have like that not, I don't wanna say that drive, but he's like that unicorn, this yeah. this blend of having all of these constant ideas, but then also just like this impulsivity to to get it all down which, and capturing everything which is yeah
0: and achieving that Fascinating. State of flow over and over again yeah like how do you do it's how hard to do Model that and sell it like, that's, i think I for me i don't know how you feel kate but throughout this whole episode as i was doing research I, think I was blown away because a lot of creatives that we cover are multi-dimensional right like they have many talents they're creative across the board But film, to me, is a really interesting medium, because, especially in the way that he did it. Because he wrote, had the vision for it, would direct them, produce them, and edit them. So it's like, his vision wasn't just on the paper. It was Mm -hmm. every single element in the film. It's bigger than that. It's
1: next level. And on top of that, all of the worlds he's creating and the details, the intricacies of all the characters... And the humor element on yeah. top of that, too, which is not easy to write. No, it's humor, not. humor is really hard. Yeah. So and edit and produce that. So It's a, it's a
0: lot. <laughs> it's, it's very <laughs> multifaceted. So in 2009, he was in New York City with Nance, his wife Nancy, Nancy, to visit his new grandson and his son who lived there. And he went out for a morning walk, which he did a lot. That was not unusual for him to do. And he unfortunately collapsed on the sidewalk a few blocks from his hotel in New York. And Mm -hmm. I guess he was just out writing, observing. And his family actually said that at least when he passed away, he was doing something he loved note taking. Mm -hmm. And his death was a complete surprise. I mean, he had displayed despite being a smoker for most of his life, he had quit several years prior to this and displayed zero signs of bad health. Like nothing else was wrong with him. So it was really a surprise and a shock I remember when this happened. Do you remember when he passed away? What year was this? 2009. Mm, No. I just remember the media coverage. Like, people were so sad. And it was, I mean, obviously, it was a big deal in Hollywood to lose him, especially Mm -hmm. because he hadn't really been around for years. And so I think it was a reminder that, yeah, like, he made a pretty big impact.
1: (laughs) Major, huge. Yeah. Even bigger than uh, we remembered hearing all of
0: this. I know. So Beethoven this yeah <laughs> this broke my heart his son John the 3rd said I lost two people with his death I lost my father which comes with its own territory but really that was second to losing him as a friend collaborator and mentor to my children Aww. I know wow you know. Macaulay Calkin, who obviously was in Home Alone, said after John passed, I was a fan of both of his work and a fan of him as a person. The world has lost not only a quintessential filmmaker whose influence will be felt for generations, but a great and decent man.
1: Hmm.
0: Well said. He did, to the surprise of absolutely nobody, leave behind a ton of writing. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of notebooks left behind filled with new stories. Wow. Others were just full of seeds of ideas, some were full of complete stories, like it was all over the map. And in a Vanity Fair article with his sons, they showed the writer of the article a little red moleskin pocket notebook, and it was a tiny one, but each page was covered with John's neat and extraordinarily tiny handwriting. The cursive was equivalent of three-point type. (laughs) They said in his later years, John never went anywhere without one of those notebooks on his person, the better to record anything that popped into his head at any time he wished. Observations, incidents, editorials, inventories, theories, vignettes, overheard conversations. Sometimes his thoughts erupted into drawings, densely cross-hatched characters of real-life figures, including Barack Obama. Oh, your face right I still now! I can't get over. <laughs> I know.
1: I, I I can't get over a three-point type,
0: right? <laughs> That's so small. So small. So you get the point. I mean, he left binders, journals, notebooks, papers. Now, I'm, I'm
1: so fascinated by him and inspired by him. But then there's a little nugget uh, inside my brain that's thinking that's like a little impulsive. You know what I mean? Very. Like that's that's extreme to be jotting down every conversation and everything. Like, yeah. I wonder if that ever paid a toll
0: on him and his uh, mental state. Yeah. He had a happy life. so Totally. And maybe I was thinking about that, too. It very well could have just been the way that the world made sense to him. Or he made the world mm-hmm. make sense to him. Um, we don't know. But the coolest part about that is he left letters for each of his four grandchildren to be opened at certain oh. times in their lives. And again, his death was a complete surprise. So he was just doing this just because. But even his grandson that he was visiting that was just born, he had already had multiple letters written for him. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's so thoughtful. Right? Wow. It kind of made me a little teary-eyed when I read it. But because John was such a music aficionado, as we mentioned a little bit, he had created an iPod for Chris Candy, John Candy's son, with all this different music. And he really, I guess, got very into iPods when they came out. He loved it. He thought it was so cool. And he had given Chris this iPod full of music, and they actually ended up using that exact iPod as the background music for his funeral, just to pay homage to him and his love for music. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. So in 2014, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was chosen to be preserved by the United States National Film Registry of the Library of Congress, and in 2016, The Breakfast Club was also chosen. So that's a wow. big deal. <laughs> Two films in there? Yeah, in the Library of Congress. Very casual. Mm. Very casual. So I want to quickly touch on his legacy. We've talked about it throughout the entire episode, but I just want to read some interesting quotes before we sign off. So... Someone wrote a one-time ad man and national lampoon writer, Hughes became a king of comedy in the 1980s, who understood what it meant to be an adolescent with a penchant for outcasts and geeks. Film critic Elvis Mitchell wrote in an article... No one before him had created a body of work that treated adolescent crisis as if it were a tragedy, disrupting the world as the millennium nears. His balance of sophistication and cruelty, scored with the smartest use of contemporary music a director has ever brought to his pictures on a consistent basis, played ever so brilliantly to an audience who felt it had never seen its own stories on the screen before. Wow. Now, we know this already, and I mentioned it, but I can't even cite all the works that pulled inspiration from John Hughes' films. Um, some of them, just to list a few, Say Anything, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Dawson's Creek, My So-Called Life. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh-huh. Now, in another article in Vanity Fair, they said his best movies, the Teen Trilogy in particular, transcended their origins as late 1980s entertainments to become first lodestars for such developing talents as Judd Apatow and Wes Anderson. And then, as these pictures proved their durability on TV broadcasts and DVD, outright classics. It was remarkable enough that a baby Booner born squarely in the middle of the 20th century had somehow laid claim to the title of Teen Laureate of the 1980s. More remarkable still was that his movies turned out to be a renewable resource, with a reach far beyond the generation for which they were originally intended.
1: I don't think I know a single person who hasn't seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
0: And I would be appalled <laughs> if I did. <laughs> you would be. I actually have met several people that have never seen Ferris Bueller, and it's, I've like quoted what? it in a conversation, and people have been like, "What is that from?" And I'm like, "Ferris oh, Bueller," and they're
1: like, "What would you do that? if you found out that I hadn't seen?" It. <laughs> Cry,
0: throw a temper tantrum on the ground,
1: <laughs> punch me through the Zoom screen, <laughs>
0: you yeah. drive to California just to punch you for not seeing Ferris Bueller.
1: Just, you just, I, I hear someone at my door, and I open it, and you just slap <laughs> me in the face.
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I would deserve it. You would (laughs) deserve it. (laughs) But Judd Apatow also said that John Hughes wrote some of the great outsider characters of all time. It's pretty ridiculous to hear people talk about the movies we've been doing, aka his movies, with outrageous Mm -hmm. humor and sweetness all combined as if they were an original idea. It was all their first in John Hughes films so wow. Apatow obviously got a lot of inspo from John as did Wes Anderson as did Tina Fey she cites John Hughes films as a big inspiration Ugh, love Tina love Tina so I have two more quotes that I will leave you with again so eloquent like all these Vanity mm-hmm. Fair and New York Times writers like props
1: I, I feel dumb <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like auteur laureate <laughs> <laughs> <Lawrence? What? laughs> A seren- <laughs> what was that one you said? No, it wasn't serendipitously. surreptitiously, Sereptitiously. Who? We're using some big, ha, vocab, cha, cha. Words.
0: <laughs> big <laughs> vocab words. Big vocab words. As long as they don't have numbers in them, I think we're good. Yeah. Agreed. So in an article by The Atlantic, they said, many artists enjoy creative golden ages before hitting a peak or a plateau or fizzling out entirely. So why is Hughes' decline so exceptional? After all, he's not a critical heavyweight like Alfred Hitchcock. He's not associated with any film movement. He never won any major awards for his work. And he was never quite an indie darling. Hughes was always commercial to an extent, something that shouldn't be too surprising since he was writing copy at a major advertising agency before he got into film. And yet, his movies are seen as definitive tales of the 80s, proof that Hughes had something special to offer audiences. His decline, I think... People were so fascinated by it, but to me, like, it doesn't bother me that he left the public eye. No, he contributed so much,
1: and he, like, more than just that trilogy, though, he was making so many films. Why does he have to keep going? Do you think, though, that there is a chance that perhaps we'll see more John Hughes films post- morta since he had everything written down
0: and all of those stories stored i don't know who owns the rights to them and if like if his sons do i don't know that they really care to turn them into films
1: and that would be i want to know what he well what was going on in his brain it would be cool if someone
0: took his short stories and did something with them like all of his journals but we'll see i will leave Mm. you with this quote kate from the new york times they said, in any case, it is as fairy tales rendered from experience rather than as blunt records of life that his mid-80s movies live on. They capture with a winning mixture of optimism and melancholy, with a generosity of spirit tempered by a punitive sense of right and wrong, something essential in the experience of youth. Mm. Such big words. And punitive. <laughs> yeah, right? So, Kate, with all of this said about our friend John Hughes... Do you think he
1: is the worst? I absolutely do not think he is the worst. Although I'm still very intrigued by the relationship with the kids. Not in a salacious way, but just like what happened there. But maybe we will do a Molly Ringwald episode and learn more about that. But yeah, it, he seems like such a lovely human being, uh, perhaps a bit sensitive, as many creatives are, but a little bit controlling, perhaps. What, a, what an impact he's made. That was fascinating. Great job. I loved it.
0: Well, I'm glad you came on this ride with me. I think that it's always interesting to reflect on your teenage years and who better to inspire that reflection than our friend John Hughes. I think he had a special way of doing that for all of us. It
1: still does. You know, yeah. And y- you didn't even mention that we have a couple of Design Pickle ads that we did that were based off. We I know we did... F- Breakfast Club, but were there any others, too? Maybe it's just Breakfast Club. so,
0: but that's inspiring some other ad ideas (laughs) as we say this. Yeah, we we did did
1: an ad campaign that was, like, really short snippets of classic films, but with our pickle suit guy, and we did one that was uh, replicating the end of The Breakfast Club, you know, with the fist in the air, and I feel like that's how we, yes, I feel like that's how we end this episode, just, like, walking out into a field, fist in the air, (laughs) freeze frame so music true. playing love it air the credits no that was wonderful and i want to hear from our listeners what do you think what did what do you what's your favorite john hughes film hit us up at podcast at or on all the socials at on the creatives. creatives are the worst or on twitter worst creatives I I was trying to point at you, but you can't
0: see my fingers. No, I just thought that you were having a spaz attack with your arms. (laughs) (laughs) We're screaming on Twitter. That's it. That's the
1: one. All right. Great job. Well, Well, I gotta go
0: to Mexico now, so... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, casual. Whatever, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back next week with a mini-episode on an unchosen topic. Uh, Hit us up in the meantime. Till then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing,
1: or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you.
0: You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show.
1: Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst?